So if you would, you, you, can, you can start turning to Romans chapter 12. That's where we'll be, Romans chapter 12. We'll jump into that passage here in a few minutes. So before coming to Redemption Parker, I, I was at the Embassy Church in downtown Denver. Um, Brandon Washington, who, who pastors at the embassy, who, I'm, who I consider a dear friend, uh, a mentor, and quite frankly, a hero of mine. Um, he used to share a story that helped me understand the problem with what he calls a truncated gospel. He came home one day only to find some tree trimmers from the HOA out in his front yard. Brandon's extremely particular, and then so this already didn't sit well. Plus, who, who wants a surprise visit from the HOA? Well, after he gets into a conversation with one of the tree trimmers, to his surprise, he, he finds out that he has a pear tree. So his, his mood quickly changes as he begins to get very curious. Right? Brandon had, had lived in this house for years And he had never once seen this tree bear any fruit. Then the man tells him, yeah, it's actually a domesticated pear tree. And so Brandon leans in and asks, what does that mean? And the tree trimmer asks Brandon, do you want any pears in your yard? Which Brandon replied, heck no. He didn't want the extra work of pear maintenance as he's trying to keep a clean yard. The man said, yeah, most people don't. This tree's awesome. It's large. It blooms in the spring. It casts wonderful shade for your family. It's a beautiful tree. You want the benefits of this tree, he said, but, but you don't want the fruit it bears. That's why we domesticate them. As Brandon was, was pondering this newly discovered pear tree, he, he, he responded with something like, so if I understand you correctly, we have domesticated the tree So that we get all the good things with none of the responsibility. Correct, the man said. And then like a good preacher, boom. Application struck like lightning. And Brandon thought, man, how often do we do this to the gospel? We want the benefits of the gospel, but not always the fruit, the responsibility, the implications of the gospel. I was texting Pastor Brandon about this yesterday and was reminded that if our gospel message doesn't affect every, every area of our lives, then we have a truncated gospel message. The gospel demands that we actually walk in step with it. Up until this point in the letter from Paul to the Romans, we have done a lot of theology. But for Paul... Theology is never done in a vacuum. Theology for Paul is lived. And so for the rest of this letter, we get to see what this lived theology looks like. Now, even though there has been some some tough passages in Romans 1 through 11, right? We still love Romans 1 through 11, right? I mean, we're an Acts 29 church. We love the gospel, And that's what Paul's been laboring over for 11 chapters. I mean, don't we love the fact that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? That our sins are forgiven? The gospel gives us that. 
But what if, just what if, there's more to Paul's gospel? This morning, the Apostle Paul is going to ask us, Hey, Redemption Parker, you can know the gospel, love the gospel, be saved by the gospel, but do you live the gospel? For us in the suburbs, especially in the dominant culture, the temptation for a truncated gospel message is actually rather tempting. I mean, it saves us, it rescues us from hell and then leaves us alone to live our coziest life now, however we so choose. In our passage this morning, Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, we don't have words like justification, faith, grace, propitiation, election, like we've seen through the first 11 chapters. What we do have is over 30 commands in just 13 verses. And if we remember from Romans chapter 1, one of Paul's purposes in, in even writing this letter is to bring about what he calls the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith that comes from the gospel. And that's what Paul is about to get into. The obedience of faith. What does faith look like in real life? The gospel lived. Yes, we are saved through faith and faith alone. Right? We've heard this week after week after week in the book of Romans. But Paul is going to show us this morning that as the gospel is believed, it also must be lived. The gospel must be lived. So if you're not already there, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Before I attempt to explain what this passage means by what it says and and, and hopefully bring application along the way, I want to read the entire passage. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. This is the word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, what, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That passage kind of preaches itself. We can just pray and head out of here. 35 imperatives, commands, in just 13 verses. Now, honestly, each one of these commands could be a sermon in and of itself. Or or we can be here all afternoon and have one 
35-point sermon. Instead, as we unpack Paul's list of commands in this passage, we'll, we'll bunch them into nine marks. Nine marks. Each of, each of these marks will show us what it looks like to live out the gospel. Okay, so mark number one. Mark number one, love. Look down with me at verse nine. Verse nine, under the ESV, uninspired but helpful heading, marks of the true Christian. Verse nine, let love be genuine. Now, almost all English translations turn this into an imperative. But in the Greek, there's actually no verb. A literal translation would be sincere love, period. Which causes some to to interpret this entire passage as a definition of love. Now, I personally don't think that's what Paul is doing here. Although we will find out in a couple weeks, love is the fulfillment of all commands. And as Paul says in his famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, nothing matters, not even martyrdom. Or like when Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? Singular. He answers by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, quoting Deuteronomy. And then he says a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus. And then he confuses everyone at the end by saying, there is no greater commandment, singular, than these, plural. Jesus is saying you can't do one without the other. If you love God, you will love your neighbor made in God's image. Orthodoxy, right? Belief about God is dead apart from orthopraxy, right? Practice, right? Living. Or like in the book of James, which we'll spend the summer in, says, faith without works is dead. We need to be doers of the gospel, not hearers only. So yes, genuine love must undergird everything we do as God's people. We are called to love. Sincere love. Genuine love. Not hypocritical love. Let's keep reading. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So, so contrary to how many define love in our culture, love is not the same thing as, as tolerance, um, acceptance, inclusivity. No, true love hates evil. Truth is not relative. And, and, and love abhors what is false, what is evil, what is opposed to God. And on the contrary, it it clings. It holds fast to what is good. And good not based on our opinion of what good is, but on what God declares to be good. And just a quick point of application. We'll run our application kind of through the sermon today. Especially in in our cultural moment of the, the sexual revolution. Right? Let's remember, as we abhor evil, let's remember that Jesus did hang out with sinners, right? The ones the culture deemed as filthy. And and I say that just so in our abhorring and in our hatred of evil, and we must call sin what it is, sin, but we must never abhor or hate a fellow image bearer, even if we disagree on their lifestyle. And we will disagree with folks, right? Truth is offensive and love abhors what is evil, 
but we look to Jesus who embodies grace and truth. Grace and truth. And as his followers, we must do likewise. So if anything, let this command cause you to turn inward first, see the evil in our own lives, hate it, repent of it. Oh, wretched man that I am. And praise God for Jesus and forgiveness. And then with that attitude, let me get outside my comfort zone and care for those who maybe even the church has ostracized and go love on them. Grace and truth. We don't compromise truth. We abhor evil. We call sin, sin. But we must lead with grace. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let's remember who Paul is writing to. Context is king. And and the Bible will never mean what it never meant. So he's writing to Jews and Gentiles, the church in Rome, a hostile environment, but a separate Jewish congregation and Gentile congregation might sound like a good idea, but not to Paul. That's not an option because the gospel, these culturally different people must welcome one another into the household of God as siblings These two Greek words in in verse 10 evoke family love. You'll know one of them, Philadelphia, brotherly and sisterly love. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says, Paul conceives of of the church as a family that is even closer than one's biological family. For all are united to Christ as brothers and sisters. That's convicting, right? I, I, I used to be the guy who, who, who would make fun of Christians who, 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 who I felt idolized the nuclear family until I got married and started having kids. And now this is my daily temptation. When Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection, he's calling us, church, to love one another like family. Family. Because we are Like when Jesus said, my mother, my my brothers and sisters are those who do the will of my father. Now we don't exactly have the same multicultural church that they had in Rome. But Parker is slowly growing and becoming more and more diverse. So hopefully we will one day. But even now, as you think of the call to love one another, who comes to mind? Do you think of the ones you, you already enjoy and hang out with? The ones who are, who are like you with similar interests, same life seasons, who, who share your political views? Because those people are easy to love, right? Verse 10 in the NIV says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. We need to remember the entire church, old and young, Married, single, rich and poor, Republican, Democrat, male and female is the family of God whom this command is addressed to. So for instance, just one of many, many applications to this verse, cultivating loving friendships with those of the opposite sex, 
your, your brothers, your, your sisters in Christ. In the movie, When, when Harry Met Sally, um, there's a line from Billy Crystal who, who plays Harry, and he says, men and women cannot be friends. Cannot be friends. The, the sex part always gets in the way. Unfortunately, I think many in the evangelical church has taken this as gospel. Instead of the Bible's understanding of God's family, brothers and sisters united and devoted to one another in love and honoring one another as siblings in Christ. Theologian Amy Bird has a wonderful book called Why Can't We Be Friends? Subtitle, Avoidance is Not Purity. In it, she says, men and women can't be friends until we stop letting the wrong voices tell us who we are. Our identity matters. In Christ, we are siblings in God's family called to be devoted to one another and honoring one another above ourselves. Amen? Okay, time to pick up the pace if we're going to get through nine marks. Mark number two. Mark number two, devoted to Christ. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. According to Paul, there's not two categories of Christians. The on fire ones and the other ones. Um, No, this command for the Christian, devotion to Christ. What's that look like? Zeal. Fire. Uh, A more literal translation to this Verse right here would be, be on fire in the spirit as you serve Jesus the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. When our eyes are fixed on the things that cannot be seen, we can rejoice in hope in our reigning king now and in the glory that is yet to be revealed. Patient in tribulation because, we, because here we do not have a lasting city. We are seeking a city that is to come, church. And constant in prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we play a role in advancing God's kingdom here on earth, we are utterly dependent on God. Praying without ceasing. On fire in the spirit in our devotion to Jesus our Lord. Mark number three. Mark number three. Generosity. Generosity. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Healthy Christians are generous. Generous with their resources to those brothers and sisters in need. And generous with their homes, time, and lives as they foster a culture of hospitality. We, we see in the book of Acts that the early church was devoted to this. In Acts 2 it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is what Paul is after. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield in her her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, says, Radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. 
Amen, right? This is our call, church, as we live out the gospel. Mark number four. Mark number four, the the gospel is lived as we bless our opposition. We we are called to be a blessing. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now for one verse, we get a little break from life inside the church to life outside. Persecution from unbelievers. How shall the church respond? Paul takes a a line out of the Sermon on the Mount and like Jesus responds radically. We bless. We bless those who persecute us. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We'll get a little bit more into retaliation in our eighth mark. But I do hope Jesus' upside-down kingdom is starting to shake us up. Living out the gospel is extremely countercultural. So whether it's it's physical persecution like our brothers and sisters are experiencing right now in Afghanistan and around the globe, or if it's verbal persecution that that all of us will experience if we're following Christ and, and rubbing shoulders with the world, And I I mean, people should think we're a little strange, right? Bless, bless, bless. We are called to be a blessing. I read a story this week from a, uh, sorry, from a a New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg. And I I think it's so good in illustrating this point. I'm going to read the whole thing here. He says, quote, Sunday was one of my students at Eastern Seminary four years ago when we learned of a riot in his home state of Kaduna. Thousands of radical Muslim youth had marched for several days in the state capital to demand Sharia law. So Christians decided to stage a peaceful countermarch, pleading that Sharia law not be imposed. Muslims controlled the politics of the state, but they had a large Christian population that finally decided to speak up. As we heard the story, some Muslim youths began hurling stones at the Christian marchers, most of whom had traveled from the southern part of the state for the march. When some Christian youth hurled stones back, extremist Muslims suddenly attacked with automatic weapons and machetes, slaughtering hundreds, most of them women. Children were slaughtered on their way home from school. Others returned to find their parents dead. I prayed with Sunday. His cousin had been killed, and he did not know whether his brothers now missing were dead or alive. Rise up, O God, I cried passionately. Avenge the blood of your servants. When I finished, Sunday prayed. Please forgive the Muslims and spare them, he pleaded, because they do not have hope. I bowed my head in shame. Sunday's compassion was right. Bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. Mark number five. Mark number five. Solidarity. Solidarity. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Christians exhibit solidarity with fellow family members. 
Right In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul, speaking of the church as the body of Christ, says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. In our church alone, there are members in sweet seasons of blessing with much to rejoice about and be happy in. Let's come alongside and rejoice with them, celebrate with them. Others are experiencing deep sorrow. All they can do is weep. Let's come alongside them and enter into their sorrow. We don't need to have the right words. Weeping is a form of lament like Aaron talked about earlier. Words aren't always needed, but an incarnational presence is and when what kind of sorrows are worthy for us to weep alongside our siblings in Christ? H.B. Charles says, The Bible calls us to weep with those who weep. It doesn't tell us to judge whether they should be weeping. The people of God are devoted to solidarity with their siblings in Christ, in joy and in sorrow. Mark number six. Mark number six. Unity, unity. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Now this builds off what was just said about solidarity, but what an awesome moment the church has right now in redemptive history, right? The the, the world is getting more and more polarized. The church can follow suit and we can keep finding churches, pastors who agree with us on every little issue, issue, Or the church could be the place where totally different people with diverse backgrounds come together under the lordship of Christ in harmony. Jesus' prayer in in John 17 before he is betrayed is mind-blowing to me. He prays that the church would be one, united like he is to the Father. And by this kind of harmony... Check this out. By this kind of harmony, the world, the world will know the Father sent the Son. Our harmony in the church is part of Jesus' plan for mission, for the advancement of his kingdom. His church must be devoted to unity, living in harmony with one another. Let's keep reading. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is Mark number seven. Humility. Humility. Like we've already talked a lot about in the book of Romans. The gospel humbles us. Right? We did nothing. God chose us. He he grants us faith and repentance and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And even now as we live out the gospel, apart from him, we can do nothing. (laughs) So even the fruit that comes from our lives is because of his working in us. Let us never stop singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We are humble because humility is the only, the only response to this gospel of grace. Mark number eight, peacemakers, peacemakers. We seek peace. Look at verse 17. 
repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. As God's children, the Apostle Paul is calling us to peace in the midst of opposition. And this can honestly feel contrary to everything that's right. I mean, most good movies have some sort of revenge plot, right? In, in, in sermon prep this week, uh, Pastor Mark and I went and saw the new Spider-Man. Um, and, and man, if you've seen the movie, didn't you just want Spider-Man to kill that Green Goblin for what he did to Aunt May? <laughs> Or, or, or even the Princess Bride, right, has, has that famous line, my, my name is Iniego Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. <laughs> Revenge is woven into our cultural DNA. And I think there can be a good desire in revenge. A wrong must be made right. Justice must be served. The problem, according to our passage, is when we take revenge into our own hands. Revenge is exciting, but it is not the way of the Lord. God's people must be about peace. Live peaceably with all, our text says. Never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Christians must not seek revenge of any kind because God and God alone has the right to avenge, not us. We, we must know our role and play our role. And our role, church, is to be peacemakers. Peacemakers. I think the Lord is wise for not giving us the responsibility of revenge. When revenge and retaliation is our aim, we begin to change. And not to look more like Christ. We change for the worse. Right? Friedrich Nietzsche is not wrong. I think he's long, wrong on a lot of things. But he's not wrong when he says, Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gaze also, gazes also into you. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32 when he says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And, and then quotes Proverbs 25 when he says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think Paul is saying that by showing undeserved kindness, we have the potential to turn enemies into friends. And not just our friends, but friends of God. However, those who do not change, repent, turn to God, such kindness will actually have a negative effect on them. Stacking coals of fire on one's head are Old Testament symbols for God's future judgment. As tempting as revenge can be, church, we must seek peace. Which brings us to our last mark, our ninth mark. 
in living out the gospel from this passage. Doing good. Doing good. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. By taking revenge into our own hands, we are overcome by evil. The prescription to overcoming evil, doing good. God's call for us as we live in exile here, it is for us to pursue good. The good of our cities, the good of our neighbors, the good of our enemies. And isn't this the gospel? Right? We're only being asked to do what God has already done for us. Our sin before a holy God has a penalty, right? Death. God could have, give, could have given us exactly what we deserved, his wrath. And instead, how did Jesus overcome evil? Sin, death, and even Satan himself. By giving us grace, undeserved goodness, a sinless life. Jesus, the Son of God, lived on our behalf. And a brutal death on a cross he experienced for us. Through his victorious resurrection and ascension, he gives us life from the dead. The gospel is the power and motivation to live out all of these commands. In Christ, with Christ, through Christ, we walk in step with the gospel. Let us never domesticate the gospel. N.T. Wright says, God's new project is not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. Let me read that again. God's new project is not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. Our passage this morning is what Paul's Twitter feed would look like today if, if, if his Twitter followers were the church in Rome. And these are not simply the, the marks of the gospel lived out. These marks also make up a church culture, right? Dr. Tony Evans says, if we really want, if we really want to change our country for good, we should just get Christians to live as Christians. Ultimately, that's what Paul is urging us to do this morning from from Romans. Be who you are. Live out the gospel. Don't have a truncated gospel message. Let me end one more quote from one New Testament scholar. I think it's very fitting. He, he says, It does no good merely to affirm all the right doctrines. Knowledge by itself does nothing worthwhile. It must be lived, implemented, experienced, and put into force. This is not to suggest life over doctrine. It is to insist on correct doctrine. For life flows from proper understanding. But true orthodoxy is never about merely thinking right thoughts. It is about thinking rightly to live rightly. Our passage this morning is very easy to skim past as you're reading the book of Romans. I definitely have. Like Paul, yeah, I know. Love, give, bless, seek, do good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But could you imagine, RP, 
what our church culture would feel like if we, brothers and sisters in God's family, actually lived this out. Because of the gospel, we can. Because of the gospel, we must. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you, God, that you do rescue us from your wrath and you rescue us from damnation, God, but, but you also call us to live, to live as your people. So Lord, help us, empower us by your spirit to live out the gospel. And it's in your name we pray, amen.